0: In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. Always as we enter into prayer and study, we always ask for the Holy Spirit to be with us, to guide us. And we will be seeing a new St. Paul or a different St. Paul in tonight's uh, uh, section of Romans. And from here on, it is uh, a much different person that we see. And so help us to understand not only, uh, what we are reading or hearing, but help us to understand the person behind this, the writer, St. Paul himself, because we're seeing a new different, or a different kind of person. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening. And we give you praise and thanksgiving and all things, in Jesus' name. I hope that if you've uh, done your reading, and I assume you have, obviously, uh, now why wouldn't you? This is the most exciting things you've probably read in ages. Uh, but I hope you've seen a sort of different uh, side of Paul. And as we go forward, you're going to see more of this different side. Not the harshness that we've seen earlier uh, or the critical St. Paul that we saw earlier, but nevertheless, you're going to see one that is often referred to as a genius. And even this uh, commentary author calls him a genius, in theological writing. Uh, perhaps we would look at it a little differently, but you've got to realize that there was no school of theology around at Paul's time. Uh, he had only the Holy Spirit and prayer to rely upon. And so when he comes up with these very deep theories, um uh, they're coming directly from God because there was no one else. He didn't learn it from anyone else. Uh, the apostles, the other apostles, I should say, uh, were not close. And Paul really talks about in some of his other letters that there never was a closeness except perhaps a little bit with uh, Peter, but not really a great, closeness or a friendship so where did Paul get all this information the only place he could have gotten it from was from God himself now that doesn't mean that he and God sat you know across from each other and had a cup of coffee and talked theology no uh, but through prayer and inspiration uh, this information was given to him obviously We saw where it says in Corinthians that he had some divine revelation, but he doesn't go into any detail as to where or when or what. But we assume that that is where most of the information that he got, uh, at least to begin with, came from, directly from God and the Holy Spirit. All right? So that's one of the things that you have to keep thinking about And realizing when you read this, because one of the questions that obviously will come to your mind at some point or another is, why are we reading all this stuff in the first place? You know, it's like preaching to the choir. We are not Jews. We are all Christians. We are all baptized. We all believe in Christ. So why is this so important to us? Well, it's important to us for a lot of reasons. One, it tells us where our theology came from, where the teachings of the church began, uh, and from where did they get their start. And their start came from God himself. That is why we don't have prophets like uh, in the Old Testament, our great patriarchs as in the Old Testament, it is the church who now speaks for Christ and for God Himself. Um, and though we may not always agree with the church, uh that's not unusual. The Jewish people did not agree with the uh the prophets. In fact they murdered all the prophets. Uh they hounded Jeremiah to the point that they chased him all over Jerusalem and then all over Israel and all the way to Egypt and they still murdered him. So, if the Jewish people, you know, this goes on and on. People do not like to be told where they are wrong. They only want to be guided into the nice, fuzzy, warm things and this is not exactly what God wants of us. What he wants is not drudgery and hardship and those kinds of things, but the beauty of the things that he does want takes effort. And a lot of times it goes against what our will says that we should do or we should want. So there are many reasons why we should be studying uh, Paul's letters. As dreary as they may be, as difficult and confusing as they may, may be, they still are the basis for the church's philosophy and theology. All right? So, with that, that is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, also, you'll see a little bit of a humility beginning to uh, surface in Paul's writings. Not a lot, He doesn't really get into a lot of humility until he writes his great letter to the Philippians. and That is all about humility. Um, But humility is not uh, timidity. It is not where we cringe and sit back and say, you know, after, uh, and I used to get this from my mother all the time. She would do this great dinner, and we used to have these big family dinners because I came from, a big family, so we'd have these big family Sunday dinners, you know, and she'd slave away making this great dinner, and then you'd, you know, compliment her, and she said, oh, well, it was nothing. I just threw this together, you know. Well, you know darn well she didn't just throw it together. Uh, but that's kind of false pride, in a way. And even though we loved her for it, uh, we didn't believe her. Uh, and, uh, you know, but that's not what Paul is really doing. When he is trying to, to truly be humble, he'll tell you. But he's not afraid also of saying that he's done some great things as well. And uh, he's not afraid of saying he's experienced a lot of suffering and trials. So Paul is a very complex person. And if you could get to know him, like uh you would like to know, say, Abraham Lincoln. Well, of course, we have all kinds of books that are available on Abraham Lincoln to know virtually every thought he ever made. Uh, we don't have that with Paul. But you can kind of, after reading many of his letters, putting them all together in uh, the order in which they were written, you'll see that he goes from a very strong, brash, uh, almost arrogant person to a very humble uh, and a very likable person towards the end. All right. And that, we hope, is the softening uh, that the relationship with Christ will bring to all of us. Any questions uh, before we begin? Just sick. Well, it couldn't have been very important then. Every now and then, Paul uses the word gospel. Yes. And what is he referring to? He's referring to the teachings of the apostles and really the life of Christ. See, his whole effort, his lo- whole life after his conversion, was to preach the benefits of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Not into the details uh, that the apostles went into in the Gospels, but the teachings of Christ and his life was referred to as the good news by the apostles when they would be preaching. So if you read the other three Gospels, other than Matthew um, and uh, more or less John, too, uh, they don't use the word gospel. They use the word good news. And if you translate good news through the German, it comes out gospel. Because good news in German is gut spiel. And if you say that fast enough, particularly with a couple beers, uh it comes out gospel. Okay. Uh, good question. Anyone else have a question? All right. Let's begin at chapter nine. Chapter nine is a brief summary of the history of the Jews. Alright? Now, we have to stop a few minutes here and Think. This letter is called the letter to the Romans. Presumably, and on the surface, most people consider it written to converts from other faiths or from no faith to Christianity. Almost excluding Jewish people. Well, neither of that is correct or totally correct. In here, he's talking specifically to Jewish people. Trying to convince them to convert. Or to Jews who have already converted and to kind of reassure them. Right. So it's a brief history to give them give you some idea of where they came from and the problem that they encounter when they refuse to accept Christ. And that is the point that he's trying to make throughout all of chapter 9. All right. So let me go through, and it's not uh, the easiest chapter, but we'll get through it, and I hope you'll see that point, that point, uh, by the time we get to the end. All right. Paul's love for Israel. Now again, if this was written strictly to people in Rome, why would they even care about Israel? Well, there were a number of Jews in Rome and the surrounding territories. It wasn't called Italy at the time. All right, because in the diaspora, or the diaspora as some people pronounce it, after the Babylon, or during the Babylonian conquest and shortly after, the Jews fled Israel, or many Jews fled Israel, not all of them, but many of them, and they went to surrounding areas, primarily, uh, the area around Rome, the area around Carthage in North Africa and Cairo, and then they went east, uh, and northeast to Greece, alright. And Turkey. Uh, so they fled, and that was called the, uh, diaspora, or the diaspora, whatever, which way you pronounce it, alright? And there are the Psalms written after that period of time. Uh, also Ezekiel, just recently, and forget two or three weeks ago, in the Sunday Mass, there was a portion of the prophet Ezekiel read as the first reading, where he says, uh, and I'm sort of quoting this from memory. Uh, now I plan, or speaking in in, in the, the voice of God, now I plan to open your graves, my people, and return you from your graves. Well, he's not talking about graves as we think of it. He's talking about all of these places that they were scattered in the diaspora, as if they were graves because they went there fearing for their lives and they never considered that their homeland. All right? They always felt uh, like they were refugees in these areas wanting to come home. And that's what he's talking about uh, there in uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Okay. I speak the truth in Christ, I do not lie. My conscience joins with the Holy Spirit in bearing me witness that I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, that's a rather strong statement. Um, he's saying, in an essence, he would give up his spiritual life if he could save more of the Jews or convince more of the Jews of the importance of Christ. For they are Israelites. There's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. These are all things that the Jewish people uh, are known for and for which Christianity is grateful for. All right. Giving of the law, the worship, the promise. There's the patriarchs patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. Messiah is a descendant of one of the sons of uh, Jacob. Alright. Which son? Anyone know? Judah. Judah, of course. Yes. Judah. God who is all over all, be blessed forever. Now, that's kind of a flowering beginning. Uh, But that's the way all of uh, Paul's beginnings start. God's free choice. But it is not that the word of God has failed. For not all who are of Israel are Israel. That's an interesting statement. Not all of those who are born in Israel are truly Israelites or Jews. All right. Nor are they all children of Abraham because they are his descendants just because they are his descendants. If you put the word just in there, it makes a little more sense. All right. Just because they are his descendants. But it is through Isaac that the descendants shall bear your name. Remember, Abraham had two sons. The sons, uh, his son Ishmael, by the slave girl, Hagar, was not accepted by God because it was Abraham, you might say, taking uh, things into his own hands and kind of uh, moving forward and not waiting for God and the promise. It was Isaac who was promised by God uh, to Abraham and Sarah and it was the descendants of Isaac but Paul is making a further distinction that even though you were a descendant of Isaac that doesn't necessarily make you uh, the descendant of Abraham as he sees it he sees only those people who now have accepted Christ as being the true descendants of Abraham. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. Yes, the children of the promise, and that is the sons and descendants of Isaac. But nevertheless, Paul is making a further distinction as he goes on. About this time I shall return and Sarah will have a son. That is a quotation of the angels right out of uh, the book of Genesis. And not only that, but also when Rebecca uh, had conceived children by one husband, our father Isaac, before they had yet been born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's elective plan might be continued, not only by works, but by his call, she was told, she, Rebecca, was told, that the older son shall serve the younger, the older son being Esau. Uh, this is all Jewish history in the book of Exodus, but Paul is going back and starting with this uh, in the beginning of chapter 9 to give you a little history of why the Jewish people and believe me, I'm putting this into my own language Jewish people who don't accept Christ are idiots but that's what he means he's not saying that, but I am uh, the older son, even though they're twins the older son, meaning the first to uh, come from the womb uh, is tagged and that is still a custom in Jewish uh, families today where there are two or more uh, children born at the same time or from the same birthing process. All right. The older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. As it is written, I love Jacob, but hated Esau because later in life Esau did not pay a lot of attention to God and he sold his birthright uh, over a very flimsy uh, excuse. He was hungry and wanted some of the food that Jacob was preparing. You know, a minor thing. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on the part of God? Of course not. For he says to Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will, and I will take pity on whom I will. And so it depends not upon a person's will or exertion, but upon God who shows mercy. In other words, a person cannot will to be good and be good simply because he willed it. It takes the power of the Spirit to aid him in this willingness to be good. All right. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, see he's proceeding now from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to Moses and some of the episodes within the life of Moses, all right? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is why I have raised you up, to show my power through you that my name may be proclaimed throughout the earth. Remember, Moses, no, I should say, God used the Pharaoh really to show his great power Uh, to Moses and the Israelites that were being freed out of Egypt at that time. There was a second episode that was very similar to that by God using Cyrus the Great, the Persian, who conquered Babylon during the Babylonian, Babylonian exile. And it is said in one of the Gospels that God used Cyrus the Great to show his power to the Persians as well as the Babylonians and the Jewish people themselves. And so you have a similar episode uh, much later. Consequently, he has mercy upon whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. So you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For then, who who can oppose his will? But who indeed are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is made say to its maker, why have you created me? There's an episode in the uh, life of Jeremiah where he talks about God sending him down to uh, the potter's shop to learn a lesson. And he goes down to the potter's shop and he watches the potter making a pot. What else do they make, you know? But the first one doesn't turn out well. So he takes the loose, uh, soft clay and bunches it all up together and he decides to use the same clay to make something else and God says can't I do that with you because Jeremiah didn't want to do something that God wanted him to do or vice versa Uh, he wanted to do something and God said no he wanted him to do something else and this was how he taught Jeremiah this lesson by having observed this potter used the same clay for different things. Okay. What if God okay. I'm beginning at 22. What if God, wishing to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction? This was to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared previously for glory, namely us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Witness the prophets. Now he's proceeding on through to the time of the prophets. As indeed he says to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who has not uh, beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, "You are not my people," there they shall be called children of the living God. In other words, he's referring now to those who later accepted Christ. All right. Because he's making a a difference, um, or establishing a differential between the former chosen people, exclusively the Jews. Now he's opening that that up to those who accept Christ, and this is a hint in the prophet from the prophet Isaiah, and I mean from the prophet uh, Hosea. Now Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites were like the sand of the sea. Only a remnant will be saved. For decisively and quickly will the Lord execute sentence upon the earth. And as Isaiah predicted. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us descendants. He would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Sodom. And have been more like, made like Gomorrah. What he's talking about there is in the Babylonian captivity, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people were made captive by the Babylonians and taken out of Israel, primarily the lower or uh, southern kingdom around Jerusalem and, and uh, the province of Judah, and carted off to Babylon. But only a very small portion of those people returned to Israel 50 years later. And that has always been referred to as the remnant. Okay. Unless the, host, the Lord of hosts had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom and have been made like Gomorrah. Of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know, was destroyed Um by fire and brimstone, way back. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have achieved it. And that is righteousness that comes from faith. But that Israel, who did pursue the law of righteousness righteousness, did not attain to the law. And why not? Because they did not They did it not by faith, but as if it could be done by works. In other words, they did not believe in the God who gave them the law and worshipped the God, or God of Israel. They worshipped the law. In other words, they paid more attention to the letter of the law than the Spirit. And that is what got them into trouble. And that is what has now. Divided them. Alright. They stumbled over the stone. That causes stumbling. As it is written. Behold I am laying a stone in Zion. That will make people stumble. And a rock that will make them fall. And whoever pursues. In him. Shall not be put to shame. And who is him. Jesus Christ. Yes. That's the rock. All right. Not Peter in this case. All right. So what he's doing now here is he's giving you a brief summary of the life of the Jews who were made to be the chosen people but constantly refused to to seek the will of God and observe it. And it is only those now who have turned to Christ and are willing to be baptized and live by his teachings that will be uh, put on the road to righteousness through Christ, his death and resurrection. And now we get into uh, chapter 10, which is um, or concerns the righteousness of God and our need to turn to him and rely on him for justification and righteousness. That's alright. We can see your halos are polished up. We're right at chapter 10 in page 75. So please, please join us. We won't give you a sharp quiz, a short quiz. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God on their behalf is for salvation. I testify with regard to them that they had zeal for God but it is not discerning for in their unawareness of the righteousness that comes from God and their attempt to establish their own righteousness see so he's talking still talking about the Jews now they did not submit to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for the justification of everyone who has faith. In other words, observing all of the 613 rules or segments of the Mosaic Law will not get you into heaven. What we are saying here is that the righteousness of God through faith will get you there far sooner than those people who seriously observe the Jewish law. Moses writes about the righteousness that comes from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will go up into heaven? And that is, bring Christ down or who will go down into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does say, the Lord is near you, and in your mouth, and in your heart. And that is the word of faith that we preach. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that god raised him from the dead you will be saved and why because you then pick up the teachings of christ and live by them just believing is and doing nothing else about it is insufficient your whole life then must be converted into the teachings of Christ, and that is where so many people have gone wrong. Just believing is not sufficient. Uh, we've talked about this before, and I don't want to belabor the point. Uh, but the whole idea is, faith is only the beginning of our relationship with Christ and what we are intended for. Each one of us has a place in God's plan of salvation. Paul tells us in a letter to the Colossians, says, I make up in my own flesh what is lacking in the merits of of, uh, Jesus Christ. And I thought, what could be lacking in the merits of Jesus Christ? Nothing really. I couldn't think of it when I first read that. And I had to do some research. The research really told me is what the meaning of that is. That the door is left open in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for each one of us. Because we all have a part in that. Remember the death of Christ was uh, well let me rephrase that. Christ represented all mankind and his death was symbolic of the Lamb of God at the great and final Passover meal, all right, which was in recognition of uh, or reparation for the sins of all mankind. But each one of us still has a part to play in that a role to play in God's plan of salvation. And that is what we are being asked to do. We make up what is left open for us. Not that it is missing or not that Christ's death was deficient in any way. It's that it was left open for each one of us to participate. All right? You can't say that, or let's, let's, Let's give you a different analogy here. You're invited, let's say, to a, a banquet. Uh, let's say Thanksgiving dinner, which will be coming up rather soon. And it is usually customary when you are a guest, uh, the polite things to do or to say, at least even if you don't mean it, but the polite things to say is, uh, what can I do to help? Because everyone knows that uh, the Thanksgiving meal, the traditional meal, is a lot of work uh, for the host and hostess. All right? So you generally ask, what can I do to help our brain? Uh, and if it's necessary, the host or hostess will tell you uh, or suggest something. And that is, you know, sort of expected. Well, this is exactly the same thing. We are all participants in the death of Christ. And what we owe or what our particular contribution to that is our role in God's plan of salvation. And it generally involves helping someone else. The majority of us are created to help others. A few people um, are consecrated you might say to be in monasteries or convents uh, praying and they are sort of secluded from the rest of the world but that's a very minute portion of mankind. All right, Everyone else has a role in God's plan of salvation and it's up to us to fill it. We take our faith and we exercise it through others. Our faith as we've often said in the past faith is of course necessary between God and mankind but to put that into action is what Completes the cross. Alright. This is faith. And this is action. That's what completes the cross. And we are all. Expected to do our part. And how do we know what is our part? That's what prayer is all about. And that is what prayer is for. All of the information in this book and all of the books that we've used here aren't going to do you any, any good whatsoever if you don't pray about it and take it to heart. All right? Information in itself can almost be dangerous. All right? The Jews were full of information. They were full of 613 laws. They knew them backwards and forwards. And most of the people observed them to the nth degree. But it didn't do them any good. Because they totally neglected their neighbor. They looked down upon poor people or anyone who was uh, handicapped or deformed or had some birth defect of some kind. They were looked down upon and automatically classified as sinners and therefore left the shift on their own. They didn't have uh, welfare programs and all the uh, programs that we have today for handicapped and, uh, you know, people with problems of any and all kinds. Uh, they were just automatically cast aside. Well, that wasn't what God wanted. And he told them over and over and over, and it still didn't get through to them. So, we cannot just take these words uh, that if you confess on your lips uh, and believe in your mind and heart uh, that you will be saved because there's far, far more to it than that, all right? Because what Paul is talking about is the vertical. we have to add the horizontal. Let's see, I lost my place here for a minute. Hmm? Then I uh, thank you. Uh, for one who believes with the heart and so is justified, and one who confesses with the mouth and so is saved, so the scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, the same. Lord is Lord of all, enriching all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, not so fast, Patty. Sorry about that. Doesn't Jesus himself say, those who say, Lord, Lord, are not going to get into heaven? What he means is those who just say. Lord, Lord, but don't do anything further. In other words, you can't just pray to God when you need something. Oh, Lord, I need so much money. I need the lottery, and I need it now. Well, no way, no way, okay? No, no. There is so much more to faith than that. And that is what he's really saying. Those who just say, Lord, Lord, will not necessarily get into heaven. Yes, Uh, (laughs) ma'am. No, but he gave sincerity and all he had. Because he had nothing else. He was at the end of his rope. And so he gave his sincerity and probably took a great deal of humility for somebody to say what he did in spite of all the circumstances. But your point is right. What about the thief on the cross? Um, And he gave all that he had, humility, all right, because he had nothing else left. And sometimes that's all we have. But sometimes our, our, uh, role in God's plan of salvation changes from time to time depending on our own circumstances. God is not going to ask you to do something wildly different than, uh, what your normal role might be. You know, even as a, a housewife or a mother or a, even a house father for that matter where the wife goes to work. Whatever your role might be, if it is what you are comfortable with in your prayer time, giving it to God, that can be your role. But there are circumstances even than that may change after a while. All right? My children are all grown up and gone. My wife is deceased. So this is my role in God's plan of salvation hasn't always been that way, but it changes from time to time. All right. So, I hope that you'll take that you know, seriously and take it into prayer to see how it measures up, what you're doing measures up with what God expects of you. says for everyone who calls upon the name of the lord will be saved but in a let's say very uh, cautious way but how can they call on him in whom they have not believed and how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone to preach or teach and how can people preach Or teach, unless they are sent, you see, even those who teach are sent, are destined or chosen as part of God's plan. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There's the answer, Dick, again, good news. Okay. But not everyone has heeded the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what was heard from us? And he has a, a right to say that because Isaiah, because I don't remember which Isaiah this is. Remember, there were three Isaiahs. Uh, they ran them all together, so a lot of people aren't aware of the prophet Isaiah really runs for a period of about 400 years. So obviously, It's not all one person, all right? Um, But we won't go into that. Uh, But he's lamenting. Who will believe what we have to say? Well, unfortunately, they didn't believe him. Thus, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Did the Jews not hear? Certainly they did. Their voice has gone forth to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. All right. Uh, That is a quotation from one of the Psalms. But I ask, did not Israel understand? What he's saying here is that the Christ, the Messiah, was prophesied by many, many people down throughout Jewish history, through 2,000 years of Jewish history. And even in the last 200 or so years before Christ, the Messiah was looked for and prophesied by the prophet Malachi and several others, all right, Isaiah himself, okay? second Isaiah, that is. <coughs> and the Jewish people waited for the Messiah and prayed, some of them prayed for the Messiah. But when he stood in front of them, they rejected him. Because he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. Somebody's trying to get in here, and the door must be blocked or locked. It shouldn't be, though. Sorry about that. All right. But I ask you, did not Israel understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a senseless nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah speaks, he's going back now and sort of reviewing some of the things that he talked about in chapter uh, 9. Then Isaiah speaks boldly and says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. And he's talking now about the Christians who are finding, you know, the pagans who are finding Christianity uh, and going around Jerusalem and the Jewish people. All right, now, the remnant of Israel. After the Jews finally got the message in Babylon, they adopted the book of Deuteronomy, which we studied in our last session here. Uh, last spring. all right. And remember, <clears throat> after adopting the book of Deuteronomy and returning to Israel, they took it like almost a vengeance and went completely in the opposite direction of what they did before going to Babylon. Before Babylon, they totally ignored Deuteronomy. They ignored... Uh, the law, uh, they ignored the prophets, and that's, of course, what got them into trouble and got them into uh, being conquered by the Babylonians and taken off as indentured servants rather than slaves uh, to Babylon for 50 years. All right, during that time, then, with the help of the prophet Ezekiel, they finally discovered the book of Deuteronomy, which had been taken to Babylon with them, and they read it and began to believe in it, and want to change and live it, but they went totally in the opposite direction. They went and took it to heart to the point where they again ignored ignored the God who gave it to them in the first place, and wanted to uh, go to the point of actually worshipping the letter of the law rather than the spirit and the purpose. All right, So it was just as wrong in one direction as it was in another. <clears throat> so it says the remnant of Israel I asked them has God rejected his people again after every major episode, every major period of Jewish history, which we talked about in our session last spring, four major periods of Jewish history, God, again, sort of wants to help them start over, and they say, yes, we want to start over, and we want to do things right. Well, it doesn't last very long, okay? Now, this is the remnant that came out of Jerusalem I mean, I'm sorry, came out of Babylon and began what is called or what we call the the fourth period of Old Testament history, all right, from roughly the uh, beginning of the 6th century B.C. to the time of Christ. This is the remnant that was the small number of people that returned from Babylon, Mm -hmm. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Of course not. For I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's talking about himself. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elisha, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is God's response to him? for reply, I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not knelt to bow. So also, at the same time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if by grace, it is no longer because of works. Otherwise, grace would have would um, no longer be grace. So what then? In other words, grace is a pure gift of God. What then? What Israel was seeking, it did not attain. But the elect attained it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of deep sleep. Eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. And that is because they worship the law rather than the God of the law. And David says, let their table become a snare and and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes grow dim so that they may not see and keep their backs bent forever. Same thing. So blind to what God wants of them rather than what they wanted to give God. And that's, that's a trap that we fall into many times also. Oh, I'm going to do this for God, and I'm going to do that for God, and I'm going to work hard for God, and do such and such and such and such, you know. But they didn't stop to think about what does God want you to do. I right? once knew a, a church friend uh, in one of the parishes in Southern California that I, I lived in this woman had 12 children and they were all good children but they kind of fended for themselves because this woman was so busy doing church work that she kind of ignored her children. Luckily her husband did kind of take over and keep the family together and do what should have been done. But we all, you know, it was sort of common gossip uh, that we wondered, how did she ever have 12 children if she was in church most of the time? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't want to criticize, uh, but uh, you can't help but think about it, you know? Uh, God doesn't want us to be in church all the time or devote all our time if we have other responsibilities. We've got to do a balancing act. And that can only be determined through prayer. Hence I ask, did they stumble so as to fall? Of course not. But through their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is enrichment for the world, and if their diminished number is enrichment for the Gentiles, how much more their full number? In other words, by the Jews rejecting Christ, Paul himself, as the beginning, devoted his time to the Gentiles. And through his preaching, he brought a number of Gentiles into Christianity. Well, of course, that had good and bad effect because it set up animosity between the Jews who rejected Christ and those who accepted him and came into Christianity. And that is what began the persecutions. All right. The persecutions were really started by the Jewish people themselves, and then spilled over to employ the Romans, and the Romans saw some advantages uh, such as the burning of Rome during the time of Nero was blamed on the Christians when uh, there is a great amount of suspicion that Nero had it started himself, and that kind of thing. All right. Well, nevertheless, that's what he's talking about here. That it is through the rejection of Christ by the Jewish people in general, that all others, all the Gentiles, really uh, were benefited. And now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as then, as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous and thus save some of them. In other words, by seeing what Paul has done for the Gentiles, perhaps some of the Jews who originally rejected Christ will wake up and join them. Okay. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Uh, That's sort of uh, figurative speech, but I think you get the point. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place, and have come to share in the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, If you do boast, consider that you do not support the root. The root supports you. Indeed, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. What he's talking about there is we as Christians are still indebted to Judaism for its foundation and all the teachings that were the basis for the life, death, and resurrection had teachings of Christ. Christ didn't teach a lot of new stuff. A few things, but most of what he taught was, hey, look, fellas, return to where you were at the time of Moses. All right? Return back to sincerity. But they didn't. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers so that you will not become wise in your own estimation. A hardening has come upon Israel in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in and thus all Israel will be saved for it is written the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away godlessness from Jacob and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins of course he's talking about Christ himself everything that Paul teaches can be zeroed back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is his primary objective okay alright um I don't want you, I'm backtracking here a little bit at 25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not become wise in your own estimation. Wise in this case is thinking that you really understand, and you go about it in your own way, because truly understanding requires a great deal of input to each of us as individuals from the Holy Spirit. Um, um, a hardening has come upon Israel in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in and thus all Israel will be saved well that's a prophecy that has often been spoken of uh, down through history that the end of the world will only happen after all of the Jews uh, finally accept Jesus Christ well I'm not so sure that that uh, is true Uh, it sounds good and all of that but I wouldn't hold your breath for it okay Uh, because after 2000 years it hasn't happened it doesn't look like it's going to happen in our lifetime um, but who, who knows in respect to the gospel They are enemies upon your account. But in respect to election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the call of God. Each one of us is called. But the gifts are only given to those who respond. All right? But once we respond to the call of God in fulfilling our particular role in his plan of salvation, then those gifts are irrevocable. (laughs) And what are the gifts? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Love, peace, joy, etc., etc., <clears throat> once, or just as you have once disobeyed God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now disobeyed in order that by virtue of the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. In other words, they were disobedient and therefore God opened the door to the Gentiles. All right? Now by seeing the favor that God has given to the Gentiles, hopefully the Jews will wake up and come into the fold. Right? That is the whole purpose of why God waited for 40 years after his Ascension to heaven. To finally withdraw the first covenant. The first covenant made with Abraham and renewed over and over and over through down, down throughout Old Testament history. But he gave them 40 years to finally wake up in exactly in the same way that Paul is talking about here. And come over to the full, But once they did not or since they did not then through the manipulation of the Romans that started out by the Jewish people themselves, Jerusalem was destroyed along with the temple. And The temple was always a symbol of God's presence among the Jewish people. But since the temple was destroyed, that was always, accept, that was accepted as a sign that the covenant was made null and void. And the new and eternal covenant made through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was then the only one available. You can't have two similar covenants going at the same time. Many people think, in fact, I even heard a priest just recently say something about the Jews still have their covenant. Uh Uh-uh. They still have their law, but they don't have their covenant. That's two different things. There's only one covenant, and that's the covenant that we celebrate through the death of Christ. All right? As we say at each Mass, when the priest raises the uh chalice for the precious blood, now consecrated. This is the blood of the new and eternal covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sin. And that's what it's all about. That is the new and eternal covenant, the only one available. So. <clears throat> oh, the death and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given him anything that he uh, given him anything that he may be repaid? Nothing. There is nothing that we can give him, because everything that we have came from God in some way. In the first place. So we have nothing that is our own except our sins, which were collectively given to God through the death of Christ. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Any questions? Yes, Paula? No, they don't. Uh, Paula just asked, do the Jews of today uh, trace their heritage back to one of the 12 tribes? No, that was part of the Jewish law up until the Babylonian captivity. And those books where that the tracing was all kept record of, were destroyed in the 6th century BC. And after that, it was impossible. Uh, so they no longer kept that. But for, you know, hundreds of years, from the time of Moses to the Babylonian captivity, that was very much a part of their culture and their law. And it got... To the point where you couldn't even, uh, marry outside of your own tribe. Uh, but that didn't last very long either. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Steve? Uh, well, the Messiah was traced in general by, yeah, major, major events. And of course, the Messiah was tra- uh, traced more by uh, the prophets and the promises of God uh, rather than books and records. Uh, yeah, you're well. You're right there. Yeah. Well, they they should be, but I don't hear of it, I don't hear of it, no uh, we'll get to uh, that in the next, next week where they ask the uh, Pharisees ask Jesus a question and he gives them a riddle uh, to answer and uh, it's rather interesting because if you have faith, the answer is easy if you don't have faith there's no answer all right so we'll leave that up till next week. Yes? Well, you know, by, uh, word of mouth, people do hand down, you know, most of us can trace back to our great grandparents. Uh, and further back, uh, in some cases, where necessary. And that's about the only way. Yeah. Because we know that it is not entirely accurate. Uh, if you apply any number to the 14 generations that he talks about three times, uh, it doesn't come out accurately. Now, particularly from the time of Abraham to the time of David, uh, that's a thousand years. Uh, in history, well, no 14 times whatever uh, would be appropriate. See? So that's not accurate. And then if you compare that to the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke, uh, they're quite a bit different. Okay, And one traces it uh, from Abraham to Jesus. Luke traces it from Jesus back to uh, Adam. All right, And there are some similarities, but there's a lot of differences too. So, And again, remember, history in the days that these books were written was not written in the same way history is today. Uh, we have ten ways from Sunday to uh, make sure it's accurate. And we better, because if we don't, you'll have a thousand people jump down your throat, you know, the day it's published. Uh, <laughs> these books were not written with that degree of accuracy, and that was acceptable. Any other questions? Oh, you're a quiet group. That must be because you're all saints for all saints' day. Now, let me let me startle you with saying this that everybody that gets to heaven is a saint. All right? So, make sure you you're going to be saved, right? Yeah. All right. Let's then with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for allowing us not only to read about our faith, but to study and to understand it, to question it, and uh, hopefully to live it. All right. We ask that you give us the grace and the strength to truly live out our faith, live out our role in your plan of salvation. Help us to then and join you in prayer so that we get really to know you and you to know us. So we thank you for this time together and we ask your blessing on us as we continue our efforts in this study of the Book of Romans. So we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.